All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, welcome to Sex Ed Before Bed. I'm your host, Rebecca Nava. In the studio today, we have Whitney Wilson. Hi there. Hey, Whitney. Uh, Whitney and I actually went to high school together, but we're in different years. Yes, we did. Yeah, we have a vague recollection. <laughs> that... Passing in the hallways <laughs> yeah. at some point. Yeah, at some point that happened. And... Um, I'm really, really excited to have Whitney on the show. Uh, I think what she does, we actually both went back to high school yep. a few weeks ago yep. and uh, to basically, uh, it was a gender equality conference, third annual gender equality conference at Mentor. Yeah. And uh, we shared the stage, like kind of one after another. Did some paneling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. some p- yeah, paneling, yeah. which is great. So let me tell you about Whitney. So Whitney is a gender violence educator. She works with the John Howard Society of Toronto's domestic violence program for men and women charged with, charged with domestic offenses. Really interesting. So what she does is she uses a psychoeducational programming that's aimed at tackling the belief systems of individuals that engage in abusive behavior to promote change in healthy relationships. Wow. Okay. There's more to her bio. We're going to get to the second half of her bio a little later. But uh, yeah, Whitney, can you just kind of tell us more uh, more informally what you do? Sure. So um, a big part of my job is meeting with individuals that have been charged with domestic violence and starting to break down some of the belief systems that they hold, um, some of the belief systems that they might not even be aware that they hold and how those belief systems might impact their behaviors, often uh, abusive behaviors that come out and end up being charges. And so part of what we do is try and question and challenge some of those uh, biases and stereotypes that kind of creep into our belief systems over time Mm. and provide kind of positive coping mechanisms and skills so that they can go on to have healthier relationships and remove the abusive behaviors from their relationships. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think that for most people, for most people that you work with, do you think it's the first time they've ever done that kind of thinking? Mm. I think um, certainly because it comes as kind of a surprise when we start challenging. It's very easy to say, you know, I threw something at my partner because I was angry. Um, but when you start peeling back kind of the layers of that, well, what were you trying to do? Oh, you're trying to make them be quiet. And why are you trying to make them be quiet? Because you can't communicate when someone's yelling. And um, domestic violence is rooted in power and control. And so when we start to identify with someone that their need to throw something is really to essentially shut the other person up, Mm -hmm. and they're using those abusive behaviors to have control over someone, it can really be an eye-opening experience for them. Yeah, wow tackling like the yeah the underlying sort of drivers sure wow and it's surprising to see how often we kind of write off our abusive behaviors Mm -hmm. as being kind of a a gut reaction to someone else when really there's a lot of precision in the kind of abuse we choose to use Um, an example I've had individuals come in and say yeah I threw a plate 
but they chose specifically not to throw it at that person. They threw it beside that person. Okay, so what were you trying to accomplish there? Well, I wanted to scare them. Why did you want to scare them? So that they would stop yelling or so that they would stop doing what I didn't want them to do. And so they conditioned themselves through those abusive behaviors to use that as a way to control the situation. That's so interesting because there's a level, as you say, of precision and control, even though that person seems out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that they, yes, there's sort of levels that like, I'm not going to throw it at you, I'll throw it, yeah, next yeah. to you. And part of that is just the decision and the socialization around domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very stigmatizing to go through the court system and to be labeled a domestic violence offender. And so part of that... Um, process of, of saying, well, it was a reaction, is to kind of take some of the responsibility away from that person and to put it on this reaction instead right. of really owning it because it can be shameful to say, yes, that was my intention was to hurt or to scare that other person. Right. And it's so hard to to take on that blame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, how do you, when we first talked about this, you know, you talked, we talked more specifically about masculinity, and I presume most of your clients are male. Uh, the clients at John Howard are male, yeah. um, but there are multiple programs for women who are charged with domestic violence. But okay. yes, the majority of domestic violence um, we see perpetuated is uh, male and female. Okay. Violence, yeah. Can you give me a sense of how uh, some of your clients feel about their gender before working with you versus after? Mm-hmm. One of uh, the the things we do when we're working with some of the men is to talk about male socialization, mm-hmm. specifically how male socialization um, really shapes how men react to situations in relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about things like having a limited vocabulary to discuss how they're feeling. So when I'm talking to someone about what happened in that moment, when before they lashed out in some kind of violent behavior, we're asking questions like, how are you feeling before that moment? And I can't say how often, but I would say in the high like 80%, um, that the way they label that reaction is, I felt angry. And anger is actually a secondary emotion. It is not what we feel first. We feel something else and then we get angry. Hmm. And so often those feelings are things like humiliation or loneliness or sadness. Hmm. But men find it difficult in these situations, not all men, but often because of male socialization, to steer away from words like that because they're feminized and use words like anger that are socially acceptable for men to use. Wow. That's really deep. Wow. So they, it's even it could be a subconscious level. For sure, absolutely. And when we start saying things like, how did you feel? We hear a lot of synonyms for anger. I was upset. <laughs> I was, right? And we're, we're working through this. And then when we kind of pull the words out, it's really an emotional experience for a lot of people because they don't feel comfortable in saying to their partner at times, I felt really lonely that you went out tonight and didn't tell me that you were going out and I was going to be here by myself, but instead I voiced that or I acted out in anger because I didn't feel comfortable sharing that. Mm -hmm. So it can be a really powerful tool for them to be able to use kind of eye messaging and identify those feelings to make kind of healthier communication in their relationships going forward. Wow. So 
and, and so things like humiliation or, or loneliness are more associated with women. Yeah, certainly. We do a lot of work around um, what are women supposed to be like? What are men supposed to be mm-hmm. like? Um, there's a great uh, TED Talk by Tony Porter called The Man Box talking about um, this tough outer exterior and men are supposed to be uh, providers. They're supposed to be tough. They're not supposed to cry. What's a man supposed to be like? And then on the flip side, uh, what's a woman supposed to be like? And they identify in group things like nurturing, accommodating, mothers, um, demure, and all of these things. So so they know that it's there. It's been socialized into them. But yeah. to, to see how it relates to themselves and their relationships directly is a little more difficult. Oof. Hmm. How... And so how do you go about tackling that? You know, uh, you know, you say you use a psychoeducational approach. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about that, that process? Yeah, so a psychoeducational approach just means that there's a little bit of education mm-hmm. and then there's some empowerment. So we're taking the education, we're giving them the tools so that they can take those tools and use them in their relationships in an effective way. Mm. Um, the other components of that is really breaking down those belief systems and seeing um, how their family of origin might have impacted those belief systems and taking all that information together and saying, okay, now you have the tools and you understand what you did last time and what you can do this time or next time. And uh, how do we, what does that look like? And so they'll often create their own plans for how they're going to uh, respond to situations that they have identified as being triggering. Mm-hmm. And then kind of use some positive thinking and some, some self-talk to walk themselves out of situations they find overwhelming. Wow, I like that. I like the plan. Yeah, you need Absolutely. to have a plan. Yeah. Because, I mean, we use uh, examples all of the time, but... I say, if you know going to your mother-in-law's house is a trigger for you, and on the way there, you're negatively self-talking, this is going to be awful, I'm going to hate this. When you get there, whether it's good or bad, you're going to have a lot of negative energy, and you need to plan what you're going to do with that. Are you going to take a walk? Are you going to communicate with your partner? Are you going to change that negative self-talk so it's positive on the way there? It might not be so bad. The Mm. kids get to see their grandmother. All of these things that Mm. really help regulate our emotions. Yeah. It's like creating different neural pathways or something like that because this is like yeah. habit you know you're yeah. trying to break habits that um, aren't working definitely a reframing Whew. well I suppose uh, my next point is something that uh, you've already alluded to but you know overall the factors that what are the, some of the factors that are contributing to domestic violence Well, I think it comes from a lot of different pieces. Um, Certainly, we see people who have experienced um, some negative modeling in their life from the very beginning that has contributed to their belief systems, to uh, how they behave and react in situations. Um, I've given the example to clients that it's we've heard the... um, the saying wearing rose-colored glasses and when we go into relationships we're often wearing these frames in front of us of our parents relationships the relationships that have been around us and are those examples helpful or hurtful to us Mm. and so sometimes we have to lift kind of that veil of beliefs and see okay how can I do things differently so that I don't have these negative outcomes and kind of dissecting how that that plays into things okay so you're saying that we sort of put some of the relationships or or, uh, 
that are around us on a pedestal even though they might not be the best examples yeah and even things that maybe we see as problematic but they're habitual um we bring into our relationships a whole bunch of biases um whether they're gender related or non-gender related um my partner himself would consider himself a feminist but anecdotally when we got married we were going to send out thank you cards and his um, thought was, well, isn't that your your job? You send out the thank you cards, <laughs> right? And I was like, no, there are no gendered jobs. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is not, yeah. right? Like, that's, that's something that's just a bias, a stereotype, something we bring in. And then when they happen, we have to stop and question them and say, why is it that my instinct was to think that this is a woman's job? And we see that all the time in really stereotypical fights about who made dinner mm. or you know mm. who's picking up the kids or who should stay at home so many of our conflicts and relationships are gender-based wow interesting we're all it's sort of like we're all trying to in, be engaged in um reinforcing old old tropes mm-hmm. yeah it's we're hard not this, to yeah we're all part of this process yeah. oh that's so intense wow um this is a kind of rudimentary question but I guess I just wanted to bring it back to the basics, which is how is like domestic violence actually defined? Um, well, I, I think that when we talk about domestic violence generally in media and in our regular lives, we think a lot about physical violence. Yeah. And domestic violence is so much more than that. Um, power and control and the way that we abuse other people to have control over them can be anything from significant financial abuse, emotional abuse, um, mental abuse. Um, Male privilege is something we talk about a lot. So again, bringing in those gendered stereotypes and then using them to have control over someone else. Yeah. Um, Abusing children as a ways to control. There's so many things involved. So one of the things in programming that we'll try to do is start naming those things. we hear a lot from guys that say, I didn't even know that was abusive thing, but now I see how it is. So we really need them to be able to identify them so that if you're gonna change those behaviors, you need to be able to name them first. Yeah, name them for what they are, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So does domestic violence always occur between partners or does it also apply, as you you were saying, to, to children? So relationships with children? So I would consider um, familial violence more of how it relates to children. Um, in the context of our domestic violence programming, mm-hmm. it's an intimate partner. Okay. Which, again, can be considered um, someone you've uh, been in a relationship previously. An ex-partner would still be intimate partner violence. Okay. Um, someone you're with now. Mm-hmm. And, I mean... In today's day and age, even the police have identified that it's becoming more and more difficult um, to know when a relationship is a relationship. So police attending scenes where uh, someone's on their first Tinder date. So did they know each other before? Not really. Were they strangers? Is that domestic violence? But any time that we see someone using those gendered violence or using any kind of power and control... um, Tactics, and I say tactics because that's what it is. And although you might not be able to name it at the time, subconsciously and because of the power dynamics, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so it really is is mostly limited to intimate partners. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the, my next questions kind of related to something that you and I have talked about as well, which is, you know, these people have been um, convicted of offenses. 
Uh, not convicted, okay, not necessarily. Convicted. Okay. Some of them are diverted through the court system okay. as a, an earlier intervention for domestic violence. Yeah. Okay. Charged, so, Okay, sure. charged. And if they're charged, do they have a criminal record? Not necessarily, Okay, no. okay. And some of them do have a criminal record and some of them don't. Yes. Okay. Uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, what, what sort of things happen when people someone has a criminal record and how it can be a real barrier to re-entry into society. Yes, absolutely. So my next question is, <laughs> what do you wish were different in terms of the justice system? Oh, I, we need another podcast for that topic <laughs> specifically. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, our justice system has a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, the court process, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in the media right now where there's not a lot of resources. Um, there are people that are coming through uh, the court system and into domestic violence programming who are in crisis and their families are in crisis. And sometimes that's a really good thing because crisis can breed opportunity to change family dynamics. But at the same time, there's not the resources from a social service perspective to support those individuals. Um, it can get really messy and it can become a safety concern because individuals that are precariously housed, um, you know, they're not living at home, their source of income has changed, they don't have access to their children, they're on some kind of bail order that doesn't allow them to have contact with their partner. That can be a very dire situation for someone. And without the proper counseling and support, uh, it can put the victim further at risk because we know that a victim is most at risk during um, separation first separation okay. and that most incidents of uh, domestic homicide are related to some kind of separation after abuse oh. so it's really important that when we're thinking about the justice system and interventions when it comes to domestic violence that we think of how our lack of resources can impact all the parties involved wow um, I'll share a little personal story of mine. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure some of the listeners have had maybe this happen to them, unfortunately, that I heard a domestic violence situation happening and uh, I called the police and uh, by the time the police came, the person who was attacking the other person had left and I overheard the conversation between the police and the victim. Yeah. And, you know, she just brushed it off. You know, like, um, you know, it's... So from... I'm just... I'm curious about the victims, you know, because I think... I, I My assumption is that there's a pattern of history with the victims, too, that they maybe... I, I, my understanding is that sometimes it can also be, like, if their parents were victims, or I'm not sure exactly what, what yeah. factors sort of play into someone feeling like it's okay that this is okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we talk a lot about um, in programming, we do some some talk about the um, children witnessing domestic violence abuse and how that impacts them. Mm -hmm. And that um, a common um, motto that's been thrown around is that when we engage in domestic violence in front of children, we're raising abusers or we're raising victims. Mm. And that children, when they see those behaviors, are either going to go on to mimic them or they're going to go into unhealthy relationships where they see this as normalized. They see violence as being a way that 
communication can be made. Right. And it can be really, really problematic. And we see that in um, often our clients uh, have have noted that their parents were abusive or that they were themselves abused as children. And so a huge part of that is intervening to stop that cycle. Um, and I think programming, like the programming we provide, is a really great step because it kind of halts the process and it um, cuts that cycle of violence at a place where they can kind of start making those healthy changes. Yeah. But certainly we see a lot of um, victims in both the court systems and in programming that uh, really just want to reconcile and we support that because uh, it's a a woman's right to choose. Um, But we do a lot of safety planning around what happens if you want to leave? What are some safety things you can do uh, mm. as far as your children? How can you be ready so that if it does come to this, we can you can remove yourself from the situation? And also doing the same kind of naming that we do with the clients around what abuse looks like because mm. they themselves have the same stereotypes kind of banged into their head that abuse is physical and it's only when it's extreme should you leave. But there's so many other negative types of abuse yeah and women report all the time that they would rather be physically abused than endure a lot of the emotional abuse that they have in the past really so naming those types of abuse so that they can start seeing the extent to which the abuse is uh, impacting them and Mm -hmm. how present it is in their relationship wow that's um that's very profound you know that that it's like they would prefer physical in some cases to some of the other forms that are you know less obvious yeah it's heartbreaking yeah um and we know that reported domestic violence is significantly less than the actual prevalence Mm. and so a lot of what we need to do as as a society as canada as you know in toronto is talk more about what domestic violence looks like and how you can remove yourself if you choose to and how you can be safe in a relationship so that everyone involved knows when it's happening yeah do you think that that responsibility falls on, you know, like the provincial government or federal government or, you know, each of us as individuals or? Mm-hmm. I, I think it definitely has to be like a unilateral approach. Yeah. Um, a lot of what we hear from the clients in group um, at the end, because, you know, after after sessions and sessions of, of this kind of um, reframing of their beliefs, they start asking questions about you know, why wasn't I taught this in high school? Yes, that was so profound when you said that to me, that that's a question that they ask. Yeah. What do you think that they're feeling when they say that? I think, um, I mean, at this point in the game, near the end, they're starting to take a lot of responsibility for what happened. But when you start taking responsibility for your belief systems, you start realizing that your belief systems are informed by a lot of different things like your society, like your community, like your family of origin, like the media. And so as much as you take responsibility, it's, I, you know, I'm proud when they ask those questions because it means that they're thinking about how it can change. And uh, we talk to them a lot about, you know, we have clients that come in and say, yeah, my, my brother and my neighbor both came and did the domestic violence program and uh, they never talked to me about it. and would that have changed things for me if they had shared that knowledge? Right. But again, it comes back to male socialization and that shame 
uh, do I want to be do I want to be kind of labeled as a domestic violence offender and so maybe I keep it to myself yeah is there anything that you see in mainstream media <laughs> that you see as a glimmer of hope for progressive male socialization <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I don't know about mainstream. Um, we are seeing a lot more um, men in mainstream media declare that they are feminists. Um, I mean, that in itself can be problematic because there's that claim to begin with, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, it's important that we have allies um, in men. Yeah. Um, but I think that the conversations are changing there's a really fantastic um gender violence educator jackson katz who uh has a video that we show in one of our programming called tough guys and he does a really excellent job of reframing the conversation as a men's issue instead of um, talking about domestic violence as a women's issue, which it often is, right. which really takes a lot of the weight off of men from having to have those conversations mm. with their children um, and and own the issue. Yes. And it really just says, you know, women are impacted by domestic violence, so let's talk about that. But men are the predominant perpetrators of domestic violence and of male violence in general. So right. men are also the primary victims of other males' violence. Oh, right. Hmm. So you mean like violence of men between men? Yeah, And then absolutely. also, yeah, between men and women. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I think, um, yeah, because not only that, but also when we talk about women's issues, mm -hmm. a lot of women's issues have to do with men. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and their relationships with men, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes, yeah, that can be, um, can prevent men from feeling involved or interested. For sure. And in, um, in getting involved or taking more responsibility. Yeah, yeah. It really puts the onus on other women to, to be champions of women when really the conversations need to start at home with young men. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Con like, so like between parents and their kids and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And in schools. Yeah. Sure. Does uh, does John Howard or uh, any other? Where are some places that parents can get resources for their kids for something like that? Um, so the the program I work within is mm. uh, for adults, so it's eighteen and over. Um, but there is starting to be a lot more discussion about teen dating violence. Mm -hmm. uh, so teen dating violence. Um, victims between the ages of 15 and 23 are the highest proportion of incidents of domestic violence. Really? So it is, oh, I think it's 43% uh, happens between the ages of 15 and 23. Really? And I, I'll tell you, that's so surprising to me because I always think about domestic violence as between two heads of a household. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about people 16 and 23, they don't have their own homestead. They're definitely, they're usually not the, the heads of the household yet. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I think part of that comes from our own stereotypes about a domestic violence offender, right? We see someone um, who wants dinner on the table right away and is wearing the, you know, the white tank top and is, is yeah, right? Like there's, there's these kind of tropes, like you said, about what that looks like. But yeah. in this day and age, we have so many... Um, teenagers with access to a lot of technology that breeds a lot of domestic violence and control factors. So things like controlling um, someone's access to their cell phone, 
sending threatening messages through social media. Yeah. Um, and more often than not, we're seeing young people come into the criminal justice system with um, using someone's private photos or sexualized photos right. and using those to control them and who they see and their right. relationships. And right, like child pornography and, and like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. Um, I think that it's probably as far as teens and um, domestic violence that relates to that kind of technology and social media, it's only going to get worse because we don't really have a great reaction from a justice standpoint to it. Yes, I agree. And uh, we know that it's, you know, teens have a lot of different relationships too. We're not just having someone who graduates high school and gets married and that's their partner, <laughs> right? So the more relationships we're having, the more chances that we're going to have these kind of interactions and we're not preparing teens for dating violence. We're talking about uh, just scratching the surface of what sex and sexuality looks like. Um, and I mean, maybe just now gender and how that is, is different, but it really isn't covered well in, in the education process. Yeah, I agree with you. I, um, yeah, I, I, like being a sexual health educator, there's just, there's not even enough time. I mean, to scratch the surface of a lot of different things and getting into those kinds of discussions is, would be so meaningful mm -hmm. and it you know it throws me because then you're learning things like parabolas which is <laughs> yeah. which is meant for an engineer building a bridge yeah. mm -hmm. and I understand it's supposed to be some kind of practice to get your gray matter going yeah but at the same time let's be pragmatic some about what we give young people the tools that we're giving them to go forward in their life yeah. you know because um, I mean, I don't know if you know offhand, but I'm sure, like, and I don't know how prevalent domestic violence is, but it's it's a big issue. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think part of that is our hesitance to start at a younger age, right? Mm. We don't want to overwhelm young people. And uh, as the oldest of seven children, I can say um, it is terrifying how young... Uh, young people get their hands on this information. We live in an age of technology and information. Mm -hmm. If they want that information, it's going to get to them. And so we need to have those conversations from the very beginning. From as I have a nephew um, who's almost one, and the conversations about okay touching and um, consent, you know, if you don't want to hug someone and you don't want to be hugged, that's okay. That's your body. I mean, yeah. those are the conversations that you can have at really yeah, young ages absolutely. that start to empower young women to say no when, or to walk away when they're being abused or to feel like they have value and they don't need to stand for that kind of abusive behavior later on. Right. Absolutely. Um, yes. That's like, that's how I feel too, is that as an educator, I see parents as an extension of me mm -hmm. and I want those conversations to be happening and it's not wrong. Of course, that's a whole other issue where young people are, oh, they're so innocent. I don't want to corrupt mm -hmm. their innocence mm -hmm. and this sort of binary between, I don't know, like when do you go from being innocent to being corrupted or yeah. not innocent, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's a real, it's a real misnomer and a myth because preparing them is a good thing and it helps everybody to be safer. Yeah. And we have the conversations with, um, 
our clients that, you know, no matter how young that child is, do not sweep under the rug a domestic violence incident. You go back and you have those conversations and show the leadership and the responsibility um, for owning those things. You know, dad made a mistake. Um, dad recognizes and we know in this house that we don't ever put our hands on someone else in an yeah. aggressive manner. And that does way more than, than you can ever expect. Right, right, right. Then ignoring it yeah. or pretending. Yeah. Yeah, or pretending that the child is, I find sometimes parents think that the child is not smart enough to to figure out mm -hmm. what's going on here. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are really smart. We do a really great exercise um, because a lot of the feedback I hear is, oh, well, they're too young to know what happened or they didn't understand and it doesn't impact them because they're not there. And so um, I did this in some of my international work and also some of my work here mm -hmm. where we put a backpack on some of our clients and we have the client say, okay, how does uh, a domestic violence incident impact a child? And we take textbooks and for every incident that might not incident, but any factor that might actually impact a child's life. Okay, dad's been arrested, so he is out of the house. Less time with dad, put a book in the bag. Dad's the primary breadwinner, so when he's not in the house, mom's struggling, she has to get a job, I have less time with mom. Okay, put a textbook in. And then at the end of the day, when we have all these things that are negatively impacting that child, we get the dad to walk around the room with the textbooks and the backpacks and say, this is what your kid is walking around with. And if you don't actually address these issues, that's going to weigh down on them. And it can be a really powerful moment for them, for especially guys that don't see how, if they didn't see the incident of violence, they're still impacted by what's yeah. happening. Wow. That's great. Yeah, we try and do some hands-on stuff. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. As a sort of visual kinesthetic learner myself, yeah. I'm a big fan of visuals and experiential learning. Oh, me too. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, your experience abroad, but first I one of the questions was where, like, what kind of things actually influence the approach that you take educationally? Is this all based in like peer-reviewed literature or stuff that's happened, that's been done in other countries or provinces? Mm -hmm. So um, the primary approach um, that's most well known is the Duluth model, mm -hmm. which is um, partially what our model is based on. Um, a, a swift and uh, significant approach to domestic violence. So not just um, you know, do some counseling, which is right. why it's part of a, a criminal justice intervention. Um, safety planning and outreach to the victim, because it's very plausible that someone can be in group and presenting as though they are accepting responsibility. And when you actually speak to the victim, you hear that maybe that's not the case. They're coming home and either using that those tools to manipulate the victim further, or they're just oh. presenting in group as though they are... Um, going through some stages of change when really they're not. Mm. So really having that contact with the victim while that person is provided counseling is is really key to the approach. Yeah. Um, and then getting a lot of feedback. Um, we at our agency do a lot of different things um, that we think is important. We have done a lot of, um, of not primary research, but research of peer-reviewed uh, journals of the impact of shame. 
So we know that shame can be a really powerful motivator. It can be a really great thing because when we feel ashamed, we know we did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it can continue into further violence. So if I feel ashamed and I feel like I'm being judged because of my actions, I'm going to start maybe becoming defensive. And if I feel defensive, I'm going to start looking for people to blame for why I feel that way. And that usually comes into more anger. And that anger, if not dealt with appropriately, becomes more abusive. And this gets even more complicated when we know that domestic violence escalates over time in order for it to be effective. Yeah. And so really like focusing in on having time for the guys in group to talk and share about how they feel ashamed or how shame has impacted them Mm. can be a really peer supportive environment for other guys that are in the same position. Wow. And I think that that's a really huge part of what makes our program effective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even just from from my own perspective, shame is so difficult to deal with. Yes. It is so difficult to deal with. It's so hard to admit to. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to know what's the proper, <laughs> what's the right coping mechanism yeah. to deal with one's own yeah. shame or things like that. You know, on my better days, I'll use journaling mm-hmm. or, I don't know, exercise or going for a walk, which I think are sort of... I don't know, I guess the most common yeah. <laughs> things people yeah. think about. Absolutely. But uh, it's, they, it's interesting because emotions are very powerful. Mm-hmm. They go from this like thought process to like sometimes physical manifestations. Yeah. And of course, I think we as people want to distance ourselves from things that don't feel good. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's so so natural. And then pair that with socialization of gender, right? And you're, you're thinking, I feel horrible. I can't talk to anyone about it because I feel ashamed. And so I'm just going to bury that. And it festers. And so to provide the environment and the uh, a safe space where people can say, what happened made me feel really ashamed. The fact that my mom had to bail me out of court, the fact mm. that my neighbor saw me being arrested, the fact yeah. that my children had to witness that. I feel really ashamed about that and be able to have that conversation in a safe space is really the beginning of starting to kind of chip away at that in order to have a healthy sense of, of guilt and then use that to motivate positive changes. Yes. All right. So. That is fantastic. Whitney, I want to uh, move into the other part of your bio, which it just really never ends. Um, And uh, so I want to just read the other half. So Whitney has worked in West Africa with the military police and community agencies to enhance legal responses to domestic violence while developing culturally informed counseling for men in conflict with the law. All right. So, I mean, I think I'm, I feel like I'm most interested in the the military and the police. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, two years ago, uh, we were approached by a community agency in Toronto and asked to um, go to Togo and Ghana and to work with some of the community agencies there that are looking to... um, build up their infrastructure as far as domestic violence programming goes and their response to domestic violence programming. Uh, And then in Togo, talk about what domestic violence uh, legislation even would look like. So um, we're lucky as much as our uh, responses to domestic violence are still need a lot of work here. 
in other places, they are so limited that uh, it's hard to know where to start. So I went there and I met with um, the some judges and some lawyers, uh, the military and the police to start talking about what a response to domestic violence could look like. Uh, I underestimated how difficult that would be because we make a lot of assumptions about what our resources are. Um, for instance, uh, in Togo, if you require a rape kit, you have to pay for that rape kit, and a rape kit is required to press a charge of sexual assault. Wow. Most people don't have the means to buy a rape kit. Um, they don't have patrol cars, so calling a police officer to your house uh, isn't a possibility. If you want your husband to be removed from the house, you have to pay a taxi to bring him to the police station. So there are huge barriers. Um, not having a shelter system for women to go to um, and not having even a law specifically for domestic violence um, is really? just kind of the beginning. This is the beginning. Yeah, so we went and we talked a lot um, about uh, gender violence and we found that um, it was really... It was difficult because there were a lot of people in that room who presented as though they wanted gender equality, when in fact um, what they wanted was to deal with serious cases of domestic violence but not change any of the traditional gender roles they held that were problematic. Oh, So we did um, a lot of work, but... It was almost like facilitating uh, a regular program. <laughs> For them. Yeah, it was like very, very um, rudimentary. Like this is what uh, the different types of domestic violence is. And it's really important that as um, a white woman from a Western country coming into another space that is not my own and that I do not know enough to make any kind of cultural judgments on, that we um, make sure that that uh, response to domestic violence is culturally appropriate and informed. Mm -hmm. um, talking about financial abuse is a really difficult thing when there's no such thing as having a joint bank account, um, when women are not entitled to own land, uh, when if your parents pass down land to you and your husband passes away, that land goes to his brother. So having those conversations requires a lot of cultural examination and um, discussions about how far they want to go. Wow. That is, uh, that's, how long were you there? I was there for three weeks. Yeah. Um, I wasn't with uh, the military the whole time. Um, we also went into remote villages to work with chiefs um, because they were, they, they essentially act as the facilitators of justice within their own yeah. um, villages. Mm -hmm. And on the day that we had gone to do this remote um, facilitation, one of the chiefs had actually had a, a woman killed that day in their village. And they were looking to develop um, a response, but also to um, gain some techniques on safety planning. Um, but again, like we have those gender biases and cultural biases. Um, I remember we had a really great conversation about how we can react differently if dinner isn't on the table when yes. we want it to. And they were really into it. And uh, one of the chiefs says, well, maybe we can buy something for dinner. And another one was like, maybe we can um, wait a little longer for dinner. And 
And then finally the last chief was like, maybe we can help her make dinner. And all the chiefs <laughs> were like, whoa, 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 like, hold on. Don't go that far. Uh, right? So it was a lot of times like yeah. two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. But a lot of really um, incredible agencies, uh, JF Today in Togo, who's doing incredible work, safety planning and uh, really trying to move things forward within their own government system. Wow. Whitney, uh, we could have another whole podcast with you. Um, it has been, your work is really inspiring and uh, it's, it was a real pleasure to meet you and I, I feel like I'm just so glad that we presented alongside each other so that this could happen. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> no problem. And, uh, and all the best. Keep it up. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Bye.